The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The legends are true. Overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10 piece Wick Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba da ba ba ba. Go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray strandum wing chair, was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. This episode is brought to you by J. Crew. This spring, J. Crew is telling a linen love story. From perfectly rumpled beach cover-ups and effortlessly sexy suiting to button-up shirts from the world-famous Baird McNutt Mill in Ireland, the new J. Crew collection is made to be shared, lived in, and loved for decades and generations to come. Shop linen like you've never seen it. And more new arrivals for spring 2024 at jcrew.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. When was the Gilded Age and what changes did it wreak on American society? Who were the great industrialists of the time and what can their philanthropy tell us about the morals of the era? In our latest Everything You Wanted to Know episode, Eleanor Evans spoke to Nancy C. Unger, Professor of History at Santa Clara University, who has served as President of the Society for Historians of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, to find out more about this fascinating period of US history. We're talking today on life in the United States during the Gilded Age. We should definitely start by defining for our listeners, when was the so-called Gilded Age and how did it get its name? Well, that question really is particularly when was it? It depends on which historian you're asking. But but since you're asking me, I always begin dating it from 1877, which is kind of an odd date, but that's the official end of Reconstruction. So up until 1877, much of the nation's attention and focus and military and so forth were focusing on an effort to reconstruct the South to the North after the Civil War. It ends in 1877. 
1947. And this is when we really see the United States just take off with industrialization, urbanization. I mean, the country is really transformed. Gross national product is going up. There's all kinds of amazing technology. It's just this incredible time. But it's called the Gilded Age rather than the Golden Age, because when something is gilded, you know, it's gold-plated. From a distance, it looks like gold. And so the Gilded Age has so much that is so, you know, admirable. There's just so much growth and change and uh, immigrants are pouring in. The nation is transforming. We've got all kinds of, you know, as they say, growth, growth and technology. But if you scratch off that gold plating underneath, we have a lot of problems. We have tremendous overcrowding. We have political corruption, environmental devastation, racism, uh, you know, all kinds of other problems. So it, it, it looks like gold from a distance, but it's got, it's got some problems underneath, hence the Gilded Age rather than the Golden Age. That's a really great analogy to kick us off. Thank you so much. Um, you've mentioned the industrialization, the rapid expansion happening in this period. Can we talk a little about what, what's happening there? What are the main sort of real exploding um, things happening at this stage? Well, there are so many that are happening at this, at this time. I mean, the United States goes from really pretty much a rural agrarian nation to an urban industrial giant overnight. So there are just, you know, a few specifics. For example, in 1856, the Bessemer process is patented, and that allows the steel that we need to make those skyscrapers. We just couldn't have those, you know, really tightly packed cities without without skyscrapers. We have um, the Transcontinental Railroad really links the whole country together. So we can get raw materials from other parts of the country to the industrial centers. That so changes the nation that in 1883, we actually have to create the four official time zones. Before that, there were like 65 different time zones. It didn't really matter. But with trains, everybody has to kind of be on the, on the same clock. So those are a couple of those that I can peg in time. But just, I mean, it's not just those things. It's the telephone, not just the telegraph, but the telephone, adding machines, typewriters, mechanical reapers, which are going to transform farming, things like the, you know, the Sears catalog. People People can uh, buy things even from rural outposts. So what's so key about so much of this industrialization is that so many tasks that before had been very skilled, for example, to make a pair of shoes, you really had to know what you were doing and how to measure a person's feet and how to tan the leather and to do all those things. So with industrialization, rather than one person having to have the skill to make shoes from scratch, you break every single aspect of that down to its simplest task, which means that anyone can do it. You don't have to be a skilled shoemaker. You don't have to speak English. You don't even have to be an adult. And so this is going to open up the job market for all kinds of unskilled workers. So this, this breaking things down to the simplest task, rather than knowing how to make an automobile from scratch, you just are in charge of putting on that fender or, you know, whatever it is. So it transforms industry, but it also transforms the population and who can be a worker in the United States. 
Right. That, that's a brilliant sense of how this transformation is, is affecting the landscape. And I think our listeners will be aware of some of the big hitters, but just so we're being really, really clear, where, where are the urban centres where these transformations are happening most significantly? Well, I think New York is probably the most famous. I mean, it just grows so quickly. And part of that is because if you come over from Europe or many other countries, that's where you land is on the East Coast. So these centers get very heavily populated. New York, Boston, but we also have Cincinnati, uh, Chicago, there are um, a number of, of large centers. They tend not to be in the American South but they tend to be um, in the East and then kind of moving, you know, somewhat towards uh, towards the Midwest. It depends, of course, on your definition of what you consider West to be. I live in California. Chicago, to me, is in the East. To Easterners, Chicago is in the West. So, it, you know, it's kind of complicated. But there are certain cities that get, you know, that are the big industrial centers, like I said, you know, you know um, Cleveland, New York, Boston, and so forth. But really... All across the country, we see a transformation and the growth of various cities. So I think there's some frustration here in the West that's like, well, you know, goodness, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't just there. Look at San Francisco, look at Denver and so forth. But, uh, but I would say the big industrial cities tend to be centered in, in the East. Right. And with this age of industry comes obviously new business opportunities. Now, a popular question most most often put to search engines is about how monopolies affected small businesses. I wonder if you can take us into this aspect of the age and which companies were holding these monopolies. Well, I think this is a really, uh, this is a great question. And it really is, as you're saying, key to understanding uh, the Gilded Age. Monopolies are businesses that really control an entire industry. But we really don't have monopolies so much in the United States as we have trusts or oligopolies. So if you take John D. Rockefeller, he almost has a monopoly on oil. He is the closest, I would say, to creating a true monopoly where his standard oil controls oil in the United States. It controls the refining of oil, the distribution of, of oil. I mean, he's, he's really controlling the whole thing. But he's unusual in that regard. Instead, what is more common are these trusts. So we might have, for example, the Beef Trust. So there are some really big companies, many centered in Chicago. So we have Armour and Swift, Brown, um, some other, you know, big companies. They don't become one big company. What they do is create, you know, a, a meatpacking trust. And so they say, look, here's what we're going to do. We are like the top five companies. We're going to get together and we will sort of set prices. Rather than competing with each other, let's just all agree we're not going to go below this price. So they cooperate with each other. And because of economies of scale, they are really going to be able to dominate particular industries. So the United States is quickly being dominated by these trusts. There's a beef trust, a sugar trust, a timber trust, a banking trust. And it's, it's, it's a bit like some of the big things that are going on today in the United States. We have a couple of, like we've got Starbucks coffee and Pete's coffee. And it's really hard for, if you're a little independent mom-pa coffee shop, to compete with Starbucks or Pete's. And Starbucks and Pete's say, well, yes, that's because we sell this product. If you, you walk into a Starbucks anywhere in the world, 
you're going to know that you can get it exactly the way that you want it and so forth. So, so we're seeing, you know, it's so it's similar to that, that we have a few companies that are really just in control of things. And this becomes so extreme. There's a very famous cartoon of the United States Congress. And we see all the congressmen sitting, but behind them are these huge money bags. They're people that look like money bags. And they say on them, beef, sugar, you know, whatever, steel, whatever it is. And the caption is, you know, the real bosses of the Senate. So these trusts are so big and powerful and they control politicians and they, they really are kind of eliminating a lot of the, the competition uh, in the country. Right. Well, that sort of goes some way into my next question, really, is how are these trusts, how are they being perceived by the general um, populace? Is it possible to, to know that? Where are these sort of cartoons coming from? What's the perception of these riches? There's a lot of controversy at this time because there are certainly many, many cartoonists and many, many Americans who are saying these trusts are destroying free enterprise in the United States. They are, they, um, you know, have monopolized uh, things. There's no such thing as free competition anymore. And they are undisciplined. I mean, in the old days, if you had five or six little coffee shops in your town and one of them was, wasn't serving good coffee, people would stop going there and they would go out of business. These people are immune to that kind of discipline. These businesses are immune to that kind of discipline. So this is the idea that they are just sort of robbing the United States. They've taken control and they can do whatever they want. There are others, particularly the big business owners, people like John D. Rockefeller in oil or Andrew Carnegie in steel or J.P. Morgan in banking or Cornelius Vanderbilt in railroads, who are all saying, we're not robber barons. We are industrial statesmen. We are making America great. We are taking advantage of the free enterprise system. And we've become so big and powerful because we're giving a superior product. We're getting rid of wasteful competition. We are providing jobs for all kinds of people who might not otherwise, because they're unskilled or don't speak English. We're, we're the good guys here. So there is a lot of, um, you know, it really depends on who you talk to. Are these robber barons or are these industrial industrial statesmen? Okay, fantastic. So you, you've spoken about one of the industries, uh, you mentioned it earlier, the Transcontinental Railroad. Um, can we touch a little bit more on, on how this railroad expansion across the United States is affecting these uh, urban centres, allowing workers to move and take on new opportunities? You've already touched on it, but I wonder if we can just say a little bit more on that. Yeah, well, I think the railroads are absolutely key for a number of reasons. As they're laying down the railroad track, they're stringing telegraph wires. Um, and then ultimately, we're going to have, you know, telephone wires. So it's not just transportation, it's communication, that we're creating sort of instantaneous uh, communication, which is absolutely key. I keep talking about immigrants as if they're the only people who are working in these factories. And of course, they're not. We have lots and lots of rural Americans who are flocking to the cities now that there are railroads. And they're saying, you know, look, I, I have worked on the family farm. It's a 24-hour-a-day job. You never get a day off. You're rarely paid in wages. It's, it's really dependent on weather and conditions. I want to go to the city. I want to go to the city. I want to have the opportunity to go to the, you know, all the things that city has to offer, you know, entertainments and so many great things. And I can get a job there and I can get a job there that will be 
five and a half days a week or six days a week, which still means I'll have a day off. I'll be paid in cash. I'll have money to spend. So they are going to be flocking to um, these urban centers uh, using the railroad. So there's there's a people component and, of course, a goods component. It doesn't do you any good if you have lots of your resources in the West or the Midwest and the factories are in the East. You have to be able to get things there. You know, farmers have to be able to get their hogs and their cows and so forth to uh, the big, you know, slaughterhouses in Chicago. So, um, you know, trains are going to are going to revolutionize that. We also have to have an ability to get finished products dispersed out throughout the country. It doesn't do any good if you can build, you know, create these factories that will build all these widgets if there's no way to get the widgets to the people who need them. So it's bringing people, it's bringing goods, it's creating, you know, this, this, you know, real, you know, two-way streets. So railroads are just absolutely crucial for this whole enterprise. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply ebay motors is here for the ride with over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly brake kits led headlights bumpers whatever your baby needs ebay motors has it and with ebay guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time plus at these prices you're burning rubber not cash keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com eligible items only exclusions apply Wonderful. That makes that makes a lot of sense. So we've got these industries, we've got beef and we've got railroads and we've got banking. We've got these titans of industry and masses of jobs. We have a question now about, about unions and I guess how were workers organising? What do we see changing in this period in, in this sense? Well, there is a real effort to unionise because with these big trusts, these big trusts have total control. They offer very low wages. Urban conditions are just absolutely terrible. If if anyone hearing this happens to be going at some point to New York, you can take a tenement tour and you can go through an actual tenement building and really see what the conditions were and what it looked like and how many flights of stairs you had to go down to go to the, you know, the outhouse. And, and just, I mean, you really get a sense of, and, and people are saying, well, now, wait a minute, you know, we, 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 in the United States, there's this whole notion of the American dream. And the idea is if you work hard and you're a good person, you can work your way up. You can have upward mobility. 
So we have a lot of workers saying, hey, I'm working hard. I'm honest. I'm a good person. And it, I'm not getting upward mobility. And my children, I had to pull them out of school um, because, you know, we need the money just to survive. So we do see a lot of interest in unions. But the unions are fighting some really, really big opposition. First of all, of course, are the owners themselves. They don't want to deal with unions and they work very aggressively not to have to. They will hire, you know, basically mercenary soldiers, hire people um, to break up trust. They use violence. Um, there are deaths. The, the federal government sometimes is called in. Troops are used to break up unions. Some like Henry Ford, it's like if you join a union, you are automatically fired from your job. This is not acceptable. So there's huge amount of resistance from the owners and the, you know, the powers that be. But there's also some interior um, barriers. One is, as a nation of immigrants, we've got, I mean, if you look at some of the signs from early, you know, uh, union meetings and so forth, they're in five different languages. So you have not just a communication problem, but all these different people from all different parts of the world with different ideas about what is fair, what work should be, who should be in control. This is not a, you know, a unified society and culture. So there's a lot of infighting about what should we be. I mean, that happens in any union. What should we be fighting for? But there's, it's, I think it's much more intense in the United States because of all these different identities involved. And there's also, and I don't want to wave this flag too hard, but it's also true that for many Americans, and I think this is true even today, even if they're poor, they always think of it as temporary, you know, that, that it's going to get better. They are going to be able to have upward mobility. Very few Americans think that they are poor. They view themselves as middle class. During this period, I think that upward mobility in some ways was working. It wasn't rags to riches, but for many, it was generational mobility. Yes, my generation is really going to suffer, but because of our hard work, our children will be able to do better. Uh, they'll be able to go to school. They'll be able to get better jobs. For some, upward mobility was just being alive. You know, they were going to be devastated by pogroms and so forth, you know, where they came from. So it wasn't that every worker wanted to be in a union and see unions rise up. I think many, many did. But again, the United States has some unique factors going on here that I think complicate the whole issue of unions. And I would also say that the effort to keep the unions down was so aggressive and so hard. And it is true that by the end of the, the Gilded Age, workers are getting better conditions, better pay. And some of that, I think, is due to union activism. But some of that, I think, is that owners realize or businesses realize that if you keep everybody at starvation level, they can't buy your products you know, they're not going to be able to save up to buy the Model T Ford. They're not going to be able to buy whatever it is that you're manufacturing. So I think there was sort of a built-in, yeah, let's make things a little bit better. That will alleviate, you know, the conditions and wages, make them a little bit better. And that might alleviate some of these union problems. So things do get better, not dramatically so. So it's kind of hard to know, you know, how much of this we can attribute to union activity and how much of it was just practical on the on the side of the industrialists. 
It's so interesting to think about these factors rearranging society in, in this way. And we do have a question on class, actually. Alex Plotkin on Facebook has asked, was there any sizable middle class in this period? And were the poor a bigger percentage of the population than today in the US? Is that is that possible to answer? Well, I think I think it is possible to answer. It's just really, you know, what constitutes poverty? Who decides what that line is? So I think that actually depending on certain measures, it's not dramatically different from what we have in the United States today. There's a, a few, you know, really, really wealthy people at the top. There's, a, you know, a, a sizable middle class. And then there's this much larger, lower middle to poor group. So I don't think it's changed very much. I do think that sort of what constitutes a decent standard of living has been improved, even for poor people. And class is a very touchy issue in the United States. There are those who really like to say, oh, no, we're a classless society. And there is this always this opportunity for upward mobility. I think that really is not terribly uh, realistic. I mean, I, I think that Early on, the notion was, well, unlike some European nations or other global nations, you know, we don't have a set class society. But I don't think there's a tremendous amount of, of fluidity. I think there was some then and I think there's some now, but it's remarkable. It's been remarkably consistent, I think, across time. Okay, thank you. We've got another question here about perhaps a, a more um, defined group. NCOS72 on Instagram has asked about women in this period. What restrictions were in place on women and what was life like for working class women? This is a really interesting question because on the one hand, traditional gender norms are still very much in place. Women are wives and mothers. They are, you know, inferior to men, so forth. And yet they are working in these factories and they're working very long hours. And yes, they're being paid less, substantially less than men for the same work. But um, the work that they are doing is really important to the family income. It's not like, oh, they're just doing this for a few little extras. Um, you know, it is really crucial. So it's interesting, uh, an interesting time to be a working class woman, because on the one hand, you're being exploited just, you know, severely. You're really, really being exploited because you are a woman. But on the other hand, I have my students read this article by this young woman. She and her father have come over from from Russia and they are working and she's working in this this uh, textile factory and it's very difficult and she gets very low pay but it is enough that it is helping them one by one to bring other family members over so she knows that her work is not inconsequential that it is not you know uh, meaningless or, or frivolous so it's a weird time to be a working class woman you know what you're doing is undervalued but you know that what you're doing is uh, is important so it's uh, it's it's really a just like i say sort of a sort of a cognitive dissonance going going on there of course women are not allowed to vote and what is particularly interesting is of the skilled workers um, the American Federation of Labor, led by Samuel Gompers, does not want women, will not accept any women in that union. They don't want people of color. Um, it is for white men. It is the idea that only white men really need to be protected, and it is their jobs that are the most important. 
So this is this is obviously really bad for women. On the other hand, women know their value, and we do see women creating their own unions, particularly among the needleworkers. And so they are not just um, passively, you know, taking all of this abuse, but their amount of control is very, very limited. Getting back to, you know, women factory workers, there was a real effort to say, you know, life has to be, conditions have to be better for factory workers. And let's start with women factory workers. People recognize them as wives and mothers and their health should be protected. And so we see various laws, um, you know, being put forward to protect women workers. And it's like, no, you know, they can't work more than, you know, 12 or 14 hours a day. And the idea was, well, we'll protect women workers, and then this will sort of extend to male workers. Well, what happened instead was factories said, well, okay, then we'll just fire the the, the women workers because we're having success with our factory working this many hours. And women said, well, I, I can't just go home. My family needs this money. And so what would happen is they would get what's called piecework where a factory, say a factory makes gloves and they're sewn inside out. So a huge bundle of gloves would be delivered to your tenement door and you would spend all day as a woman uh, turning them inside out or you would be sewing um, feathers for decorations or whatever it is, and you would be paid a fraction of a cent per piece. And so what happened was women actually took a big pay cut as a result of the efforts to improve their pay and conditions. And um, often it, you will, you'll see pictures of women with all of their children around a table, all doing the piecework together. So it's just one of those examples of, you know, there were a lot of well-intended laws and uh, ideas in the Gilded Age that didn't quite work out the way that they were they were supposed to. There's sort of a lot of trial and error that went that went forward. That that makes so much sense. And and I, I actually went on on one of the tenement tours you mentioned a couple of weeks ago. I was very lucky to do that in, in New York. And and they told a similar story of a, of a woman who who lived in 19th century New York. She started a cottage industry making garments from her apartment in her tenement. And and it was the same story. She wanted her children to do better than she did. And they told this wonderful generational story. So like Nancy, I would urge any any listeners who can do that, please do, because it echoes so much of what we're hearing about today. Today. I think we are going to sort of move on now to perhaps a second batch of questions that will feel very different from our first batch of questions, a bit like the divide that you've been talking about in society so far. Um, I wonder if we can move into a different echelon, perhaps. Uh, we've got a question from Susie1340 on, on X, formerly Twitter, who asks you, Nancy, who were the people who dominated the society of the Gilded Age? You're asking about society as opposed to business. And right now, people are very excited about this. HBO has this series called The Gilded Age that is focusing on that sort of group. And some of them are real people and some of them are, you know, fictional characters. But we do have, you know, some of the really big wealthy families in the United States that are dominating society. But there is, as that series points out, tension between the old money 
the Americans who had who had been here for a couple of, of generations and had, you know, created their money like like the Astors began um, in the fur trade. I mean, that's where they were, the, where they got um, started. And then they they graduated in into real estate. And then there's the new money, the, the the people who you know took advantage early on and made their big fortunes, like like the Carnegies. Carnegie's probably the best example of someone who didn't start off really wealthy and managed to become very wealthy. But there, so there there are the this group, and I, I would say in the spring I gave a talk at the Vanderbilt Mansion in um, Newport, Rhode Island, and you can take this cliff walk and just walk along the the ocean there and see these incredible mansions of, you know, these just very, very, uh, very, very wealthy people. And, you know, looking at the Vanderbilt mansion that I spoke at, at at Newport, that's just their summer home. You know, they have an equally lavish and huge place. So we've got, you know, these, these, I say that, you know, the Vanderbilts, the the Astors, the Carnegies, the, the you know, there's there's a lot of big names. They said uh, there's the there's the 400. That's how many people will fit into Mrs. Astor's ballroom, and that that is the sort of the the elite. So there are these people who really just do have vast vast fortunes. Some of the names I've just mentioned, their equivalent today is they are richer, you know, in the terms of their day than people like Elon Musk or uh, Jeff Bezos are today. I mean, just uh, really hard to even fathom how, how wealthy they were. And so, of course, they, you know, they are absolutely dominating the upper echelons of society. You'll notice I'm not talking very much about politicians. We, this is not a period where presidents are really, you know, after Lincoln was assassinated, his successor was impeached. He wasn't thrown out of office, but but he came close. And so after that, we have um, a period where if you try to think of the, you know, the great presidents um, between Lincoln and, say, Theodore Roosevelt, most of us have just come up with big blanks. So this is not a time of great, strong, not that they weren't doing anything, but this is not a time of great, strong, active, uh, act, active presidents. So in, in some ways, these industrial leaders um, really have, you know, unprecedented pull and, and that just exacerbates it, I guess. Right. That, so the power was elsewhere. You've mentioned Carnegie, you've mentioned Rockefeller and listeners will be, I'm sure, thinking, ah, I know buildings with those names on them. We've got a question here from Toby Jilliff on Instagram, who's asked, what can the philanthropy of the era reveal about their values and morals? That's a really interesting question, because when the Gilded Age is really, you know, heating up, there's no income tax in the United States at this time. These guys get to keep all of their money and they have millions and millions. And certainly they put it into their lavish homes and so forth. But many of them were big philanthropists. Um, Carnegie is probably the most famous for um, putting it not just into fine art and so forth that, that's for the elite, but for schools and libraries, particularly public libraries. And so, um, I mean, and he gave away millions and millions of dollars. So there are those who were saying, well, you know, my God, this is really amazing. He didn't have to do that. And these were things that workers could use. And this is really, you know, amazing uh, philanthropy. His workers, for the most part, would say, well, couldn't we just have a living wage instead? 
we would really wish that, you know, if you're going to be giving away some money that, you know, you would give us, you know, a higher quality of, of, of living and so forth. And so it seems a little, I don't know, wrong, I guess, or one-sided to be criticizing people because, like I say, Carnegie was giving more to the, to the general people public. Others were doing more sort of fine art and uh, and so forth and you know music and, and so on that were really more more for the elite. But um, even Carnegie ha- has been criticized um, because it's like, well, yes, you know, you're you're continuing what we see is almost all of this philanthropy works to perpetuate the current power system. It might be to make workers' lives a little bit better in ways that these philanthropists chose. Well, you should be reading more. You know, you should take on more of the values and habits of, you know, of the middle class. So you can be very critical um, that it was really designed to sort of perpetuate the values of the upper upper class and to sort of maintain that power structure. Or you can say, yes, but they could have, you know, they just could have taken that to the racetrack and blew it. I mean, the fact that they they did invest in huge foundations, um, many of which continue to, to, to operate today. So again, it kind of depends on, it's the double-edged sword. Yeah, a really interesting picture on both sides. With all these families, they are, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I believe they're all sort of White families, very powerful in, in, in their day. We got a question from Isaknaf on, on X, who's asked, did any minorities role in Gilded Age circles? The key word there, I think, is role, rolling in those circles. Certainly there were elite members of minority classes. Um, there certainly was a black middle class as well as a black upper class. We have women like uh, uh, Madam C.J. Walker, arguably the first woman to become a self-made millionaire in the United States. And she's a big philanthropist. And like the other philanthropists, hers tends to be, you know, uh, uh, uplifting the people that she identifies with. So she's, uh, we've got the newly formed National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP. She's a big supporter of that. Um, And her mansion in New York was a gathering place for the elite African American community. If you're really interested in this, the great book is Black Gotham, A Family History of African Americans in 19th Century New York City by Carla Peterson. And in my home state of of California, we have some powerful Chinese American uh, families who'd arrived in San Francisco um, as members of the the merchant class. Lu Hing, for example, started a cannery, a bank, and so forth. So there are these elite, wealthy, gilded age, non-white people, but they're running on parallel tracks. We don't see integrated events. I mean, very, very rarely. So racism is is too strong uh, and ethnocentrism is too strong in this country to allow for that. So for the most part, I would say, yes, they are there, but they're not rolling in the same circles. More example of that gilded versus golden analogy that you gave us at the top of the episode, I, I think. Am I right in saying that Madam C.J. Walker's fortune was founded in, in hair products? Because we've got a question from um, Lauren, LL Cool Kid 4 on X, who's asked about luxury items in this era. Were the luxury items coveted for status manufactured in the US or were they coming for Europe? And she asks, was there ever any cachet for American goods at this time? This is, this is such a great question because initially, my, my initial reaction to that, having just, you know, been at Newport and look at these mansions, I mean, they're all copies of 
European buildings. You've got places like William Randolph Hearst Castle in, in California. Um, all of these, you know, they're, they're really uh, borrowing heavily or just copying European architecture from, you know, castles and palaces and really prizing elaborate European furnishings and decorations and fine art. Portraits painted by John Singer Sargent, who was born of American parents, but is European. So, so yes, you know, if you really want the best of the best, you go where the elite, you're copying the, you know, the top class of, uh, of Europe. Also, where this is very important was in clothing. Um, so you would, you know, go to Paris to have your gowns done by Dior or Worth or, you know, whoever, whoever it happened to be. However, as your your listener suggests, um, some domestic brands are beginning to uh, to creep in. Tiffany, for example, for jewelry and furnishings begins to um, have a real sort of, you know, cachet. Steinway Pianos. Um, are something that the elite are are looking for, and ultimately American uh, luxury automobiles um, such as Cadillac, which was formed in um, in, in 1902. So there is there's you know there there are some American brands creeping in, but early on there was really you know much more prestige in having things be like the the great uh, wealth of Europe. Sure. And as you've alluded to, there is this tension between the old moneyed families, so-called, with the longer European heritage versus the, the new moneyed crowd. We've sort of got a question on that, I suppose. Claire Jacob on Facebook asks about, quote, dollar princesses. Who was the wealthiest dollar princess to marry into the British aristocracy? Can we potentially explain that term and, and go into a few stories? Well, there was some real frustration on the part of the new money you know, these industrialists who'd made these vast fortunes and, you know, have the most grand houses and, and so forth and are giving to charitable um, institutions that are doing great philanthropy, but they're still being rebuffed. They're still being sort of snubbed by the old money. They're seen as gauche and nouveau riche. And so one of the ways to kind of try to break out of that was, um, some of the wealthiest of the new money were marrying their daughters um, into the British aristocracy. Now, if, if you can't buy this class, you kind of marry your way into it. So we have a lot of British aristocrats who have fallen on hard times. And so, you know, so it, it's a mutual um, a, a agreement here. So dollar princesses are marrying into the British aristocracy. The, the, the British aristocrats are getting a new influx of money to refurbish their houses and kind of keep, keep things going. And the um, new money in the United States is saying, okay, you know, you can't look down on us now. We've married into this you know, this ancient line and, and so forth. And I think the, the the most extreme example of this was Consuelo Vanderbilt, the daughter of Cornelius and Alva Vanderbilt, who was married off to the Duke of, of Marlborough. And, you know, the Vanderbilts were the, you know, so incredibly rich. And this was such a horrible marriage. She was so miserable um, and, it, and it didn't last. And in fact, the whole dollar princess phenomenon doesn't last very long. The old money people really can't hold out forever. And they do have to accept that, you know, there are these new money people and who are adopting their standards and their charities and so forth. So that kind of snobbiness about old money versus new money just kind of melds into money, period. 
money period and how it shaped the age. So interesting. Our perceptions or a lot of people's perceptions, a lot of listeners' perceptions of this age may be shaped by a lot of the writers of this time. Um, we have some very important voices, uh, Edith Wharton, Henry James and Mark Twain are a few that we've had questions on. How much is the perception of society of this era linked to their representation of it? I think it is much more linked to it today than it was in its time. Certainly, Edith Wharton won the Pulitzer in 1921 for The Age of Innocence, so it wasn't like it was an unknown book for crying out loud. I mean, certainly a lot of, and Mark Twain was enormously popular as well. So I think that in 2023, those writers really do shape many of our ideas about the Gilded Age. And some of my frustration with that is that they tend to be focusing on the elites. And certainly the elites are, you know, part of what makes the Gilded Age gilded. But I would encourage people to look at novels that were very influential, maybe forgotten today, but very influential in their time. There's one called um, Looking Backward by Edward Bellamy. It's published in 1888, and it was in that period the second bestseller after Uncle Tom's Cabin. I mean, this was an enormously influential novel, and it really promoted the nationalization of private property. And people had Bellamy clubs and so forth. And I mean, so that was one that was really looking at, okay, if we continue on the way we are right now with a few wealthy people controlling more and more, what will this nation be like? What would it be like if we basically had socialism? So it kind of explores both those, uh, both those avenues. But there were also very influential uh, books that were well-read at the time. For example, Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. And this is a novel about some immigrants who come from Lithuania and they work in the stockyards in Chicago. And it's just one horror story after another about how, how terribly things are going. And he, he meant it as a um, socialist track. He wanted to promote socialism. But instead, everybody is so grossed out by what they read about the meatpacking industry that consumption of meat in the United States actually goes down for a couple of years. And it sort of forces the pure food and Drug Act. So, you know, I, I think that in some ways that, you know, that's really more representative of, of this time. Sister Carrie by Theodore Dreiser it didn't sell well when it was published in 1900, but it became very influential. And there were other, you know, novels of realism by Frank Norris. He wrote uh, McTeague, which is all about greed and money and the working class, and The Octopus, which really is a muckraking novel about uh, the railroads and their as an octopus that has all these legs that is, you know, controlling society. So I think that Edith Wharton, Henry James, and Mark Twain are really important, and they cover important aspects of this period. But I think there's a lot more that represented it during the time, and that I think can help readers today get a, a, a more complex, more complete picture of the Gilded Age. Right. Thank you. Well, my, my to-read pile just got quite a bit longer. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> and we, and we have, um, on, uh, you mentioned the, the, the railroads again and this, this vast society changing so quickly. We, we do have a question, um, about the Wild West, obviously, uh, sort of another thing that looms large in popular culture in this period. Waterist on Instagram has asked, how did industrialization and the Wild West eventually merge? Well, it's obviously different in the West than it is in the East, but in the West, 
We see this new industrialization revolutionizes some of the key Western industries. Farming, for example, you know, with these, with McCormick's Reaper, with some of these other, you know, big things, the small farmer really has a hard time surviving because this is enormously expensive equipment. And so we see sort of the decline of the small farm and the, the rise of the big, the big farm where farmers are, are, you know, we've got the owner who never is even there. And then we've got the workers. We see huge changes in mining. Technology changes mining. It changes the timber industry. It, it really changes things in the West as well. So the West doesn't become a, a, a duplicate of the East, but it's not like, oh, the Wild West remains unchanged. And it's, you know, I mean, we don't have cowboys driving the, you know, the cows to market. We see them driving them to the railroad head and then the, you know, the, the train, the trains take them in. So I would say that the West is, um, is pretty dramatically transformed. And as the question, I, I like that word that it, that it, it the, the railroads link, link the two and the, the, the industrialization in the Wild West, they do sort of eventually merge. Okay, wonderful. Well, there, there's been, there's so much in this period, and I feel like we have only scratched the surface a bit, getting the gilded bit off, really. Um, but if we were to bookend this period, can we say what's regarded as the, the end of the gilded age and why? This is perhaps too wonky an answer to your question, because again, it depends on what historian you ask. But those of us who study this period, we used to talk about the Gilded Age, and we'd say, well, it began about 1877, and then um, about 1900, we see the Progressive Era come along. So the progressives are the people who are responding to the excesses of the Gilded Age and saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. We really need to more equitably redistribute the wealth and power in this country. It's gotten, you know, way too, you know, way too far and we're, we're heading off in a terrible direction. And so they are the ones who they bring us the income tax. They work to get rid of political corruption, uh, try to clean up ongoing environmental devastation clean up the extreme poverty in these urban centers and so forth. But now those of us who study the period say, well, you know, it's not like there's the Gilded Age and then the Progressive Era. They're like a double helix. They're always going. So the Gilded Age is going along. The progressives say, oh, no, you know, we want to break up these trusts. Um, so we have the Sherman Antitrust Act. Well, that's not the end of the story. The Sherman Antitrust Act, the big business people actually used against unions. They said, oh, the unions have formed a trust. So we have to be all this back and forth and back and forth. And every time the progressives try to reform something, the industrialists come back with a new response. So there's this back and forth that goes on. So now we call it, it's a very, I think, unfortunate title, but we have come to call it the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, which I know is a little bit confusing, but it really is this one long period. So in my mind, it comes to an end really with World War One. Because the, the progressives have had some real progress. You know, they really have, I would say, removed some of the worst excesses of the Gilded Age. And there was this whole, oh, you know, we can do this. It's a very idealistic, you know, we can make everything better. And if you look at the United States stated reasons for entering World War One, they're very idealistic. We're going to make the world safe for democracy. 
this is going to be the war to end all wars because we're not only going to win the war, we're going to win the peace and make everything perfect. We're going to do all of this stuff. It's sort of progressive reform writ large, you know, and applied to on, on a global scale. Well, yes, the United States is on the winning side of that war, but it certainly isn't the war to end all wars, and it doesn't make the world safe for democracy. And I think the United States begins to suffer from sort of reform fatigue. It's like, okay, we keep reforming and reforming, and you know, maybe we've reformed enough. Maybe we've done enough for one generation. And so I think with World War I, it's really hard to have domestic reform and, and trying to reform industries during a war. You know, the industries say, look, do you, do you want our help winning this war or not? So I don't feel that World War I undid progressive gains, but it did kind of mark a close to that whole Gilded Age and progressive period. And I think there was this sense, as I suggested before, that, yeah, the worst excesses have been removed, we've had enough reform, and we move into the 20s. Now, other historians say, no, 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 there's kind of like a little rest there for a while, and then we go into the Great Depression and progressive ideals, you know, really um, become cemented. But since you're asking me, I would say that, it, that this, the long Gilded Age and progressive era kind of culminates in World War I, and that's, that's the end. Well, your wonderful answer has just given me a raft load more questions, but I think, I think we will have to leave it there for today. Um, and Nancy, thank you so much for your wonderful, your wonderful answers. Um, is there anything you'd like to leave our listeners with that we haven't covered or perhaps just with a closing thought of something you'd like them to understand about this era? Well, I think that this is an era that, um, like all of history, that we can learn a lot from. I, I get very impatient when people say to me, oh, you're a historian. Oh, you teach history. You know, I loved history, but, you know, I really had to do something more practical. And this just annoys me because I always say, well, what could be more practical than learning history? I mean, it seems to me that in the United States and in other parts of the world right now, we're in a different kind of gilded age. You know, we have tremendous industrialization, huge immigration, and yet lots of problems with with poverty, you know, working conditions and so forth. And so to me, it's like, well, OK, what worked during the progressive era reforms that made uh, things better and what didn't work. You, know, you don't have to reinvent the wheel, that you can really learn very valuable lessons about, you know, strategy, techniques, uh, politics, you know, laws, ideas, and so forth. So just generally speaking, I think this is just one of many, many eras in history where it, it's interesting. I mean, I find it absolutely fascinating. But, you know, so what? Uh, is it useful? Is it practical? And I believe that it absolutely is. And I think that it, it, it's been very useful for people who understand it and, um, you know, use it to shape policy and ideas and programs and so forth. So I just want to put in a little plug for the practical value of history, generally speaking. That was Nancy C. Unger, Professor of History who has written widely on the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.